0: the Internet of Things, cloud hosting of data, biometrics, video connectivity. These are all things that promise a tipping point as soon as 2020 and will shake the fundamentals of how we transact. But before a brave new world transacts, how should we then act? To find out, we'll be talking this week with international fintech expert and author Chris Skinner. Welcome to BAI Banking Strategies where each week we'll focus on the key issues facing financial services leaders. We'll bring you objective opinions and actionable insights that'll help you power smart decisions. I'm your host, Lou Carlozo, the Managing Editor at BAI. Come on in. Thanks for tuning in to Season 2, our podcast posts on Mondays. And as always, you can check us out through Apple's podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And today on the program, one of the world's leading experts on fintech and banking. What a privilege to have Chris Skinner here with us. An independent consultant and author, Chris chairs the Financial Services Club and Nordic Finance Innovate, is a non-executive director of 11FS, and on the advisory boards of various firms, including IOTA, Movin, Menega, and Innovate Finance. We should also mention that Chris has been a great friend to BAI since the early 1980s, and Chris, Welcome to the program.
1: Hey, Lou. Thanks for having me on.
0: I've been reading your recent columns, and uh, as you know, I am a fan of The Financer, and you talk about the Internet of Things. To quote one of the lines from your column, this is big. Yeah,
1: it's primarily down to the fact that we're connecting everything through technology every human on the planet is able to talk to every other human in real time one-to-one suddenly seven billion people all on a network being able to communicate but it's not just the people on the network but the things that the people own on the network so you know most of us will already have maybe a television that's internet enabled to download and binge watch netflix self-driving cars are becoming fully internet enabled transport pods Uh, our fridges are able to restock by connecting directly into the Walmarts of this world. And really, it comes down to the average person by the end of this decade having around five things on the internet. And that may not sound like much, but then 7 billion people, five things each, that's 50 billion things doing trillions of transactions. And that's where the financial system becomes important to think about because the financial system that we built was in the industrial era for the management of payments in a paper note and check form. And it involved a lot of time and cost, particularly if you were going across borders, across countries. Now we're saying everyone is connected globally, as are all their things, and they need to instantaneously transact. What financial system do we need for that sort of structure? And I have an answer, which is in the books that I've written. Um, And it's all about uh, having a very low-cost engine that manages the transfer of value between individuals and their things. Uh, And it's something that's being built right now by the fintech community and some of the banks. But a lot of banks probably are completely missing this revolution because they're not looking.
0: Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, whether banks are looking at this more as an evolution as opposed to a revolution. You have a pretty convincing case for why it's the latter and not the former.
1: Absolutely. And that when you go back in human history and say, well, what previous revolutions have there been in the way in which humans live, there's only been three. One was actually becoming human, which I can recommend a book called Sapiens, all about how Homo sapiens became the dominant human form on the planet. And a lot of that was around having shared belief structures and shared value structures, which enabled us to live in communities of hundreds rather than smaller groups. The second revolution was becoming civilized, which actually dates back to ancient Mesopotamia and the way in which the cities emerged. In fact, the oldest city was called Eridor which is now the equivalent of near Basra in Iraq but 5,000 years ago it was the biggest civilization and the king and the priests basically invented money and they invented it as a control mechanism to keep their city organized so that they had goods stored in the bad years and money was invented basically to make sure people stored food. The third revolution was the one I just referenced which is the industrial revolution invented the idea of moving across countries and borders and using steam engines. And steamships to travel, and now we suddenly needed a way to exchange between countries, and so we invented banks that were regulated and licensed by governments and could issue paper notes and paper checks. And That's the third revolution in humanity. We're going through one right now, which is the digital human revolution, where everything is becoming digitalized, everyone's connected. And we've never been in a position, when you think about the three revolutions before, where the whole planet is able to uh, trade and exchange wherever you live, wherever you are, whether it's on the top of Mount Everest or in the deep submarine at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, you know, everything is connected. We've never had that. And the revolutions I've given you before, each one had a revolution in the way in which we traded and exchanged value and did commerce. We exchange money and believe money is valuable, but what makes a US $1 bill more valuable than a monopoly $1 bill? Basically because it's US government issued and governments invented money for controlling societies. Banks we recognize have value and trust because they won't lose our money. But why won't they lose our money? Because they're regulated by governments and have a federal deposit insurance scheme behind them.
0: So, with the digital age here, what do you think the financial revolution is going to look like going forward?
1: It's not going to be what traditionally has been banking, which is for the physical distribution of paper. It's around digital distribution of data. The things we're seeing right now in open banking again, if this is a term not familiar with everyone, open banking is a program in Europe. Europe, um, particularly in the UK, to open source the whole financial structures so that back office and front office just becomes a complete set of APIs, application program interfaces, code, and apps that can be plugged and played and dropped into anyone's operations
0: as they see fit. It's a really different structure. And when you marry artificial intelligence to the Internet of Things, you get something powerful. What might we be looking at, do you think, in terms of the way artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things might marry themselves to take financial services into an entirely new level?
1: Well, the big thing about artificial intelligence and machine learning, deep learning, is that if you look at the people leading the Inventions in this space is people like Google Facebook to a certain extent IBM Watson, which many of us will have heard of and there's also then many niche players underneath and what it's starting to do is saying if you have good data as in clean data that's organized in an enterprise structure, then you can analyze every digital network node interaction all the time and gain leverage from that data. Now the problem we have today in most Western banks is that our structures are siloed and product based and we talk about channels and have everything separated in different systems and structures and you can't deal with AI and machine learning when things are separated in that structures. First of all, we need to get clean data. Most of the data in the banks I deal with is pretty much dirty data. Uh, once it's cleansed you can then start to leverage the digital relationship and contact from the data insights that ai can provide against that i'll give you one key insight which i thought was quite astounding is that jp morgan have created a contracts artificial intelligence analysis system that they say now can do 360000 hours of legal work in one second,
0: I could see a lot of lawyers getting scared of that one. How are they going to bill?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's great news even can get rid of the lawyers, isn't it? <laughs> we'll keep the bankers, get rid of the lawyers.
0: Uh, so long as they don't get rid of the podcast hosts, uh, I'll be pretty happy. <laughs> Seriously, what's the difference between clean data and dirty data? In general, only 3% of
1: data in corporations is tagged, as in it's actually put into a system ready to be analysed, and only 0.5% of all the data is actually then analysed in any shape or form. So 99.5% of data that the average corporation has is thrown away. Now, if you look at the people we fear or respect the most, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Financial, Badu in China. What these guys are all doing is making sure that they have an enterprise single view of their data, often cloud-hosted, so it's managed in a completely scalable way, where the data allows them to analyze that information any which way they want, because it's got no constraints of being separated or segregated into independent lines of business. Within industrial-era corporations, and this is the banks, but also the General Motors or the Exxon's of this world, the data is typically owned by lines of business and product heads, and no one has an enterprise data-cleansed structure. You have to have it before you can start applying real leverage to data insights from artificial intelligence.
0: Let's say we're having a conversation in front of a banking board and we're talking about some of these concepts. And one of the banking board members says to you, Chris, I don't understand this, but I want to and I want to get it. What would you recommend I start doing to make headway and to bring us into the revolution?
1: agree it's a revolution. Then revolutions need revolutionaries to help gain the insights and the change to make certain things happen. So, the banks that I see doing quite well in managing this revolution have brought in typically uh, half of their leadership team to be people who really understand the technologies and the digital changes required. Because It's a cultural change program as much as anything else. It's actually getting everybody in the corporation to understand digitalization means, the impact it's going to have, how to transition and make the change, and what the impact of that change will be on old jobs that probably will no longer be necessary, which is a lot of branch-based people, um, and new jobs that are actually going to be fundamental, which is people who can code and who can deal digitally with relationships with clients effectively through remote media. so it's real leadership change program that needs to happen. And the banks that are doing this, you know, I point to only a few because there are only a few right now who can demonstrate this leadership. But BBVA tends to be one that everyone talks about because they actually have a chairman, Francisco Gonzalez, who started life as a programmer, and he's re-architected his boardroom team into a digital leadership team that has quite a number of technologists at the front. They've acquired quite a few of the leading fintech startups in the world, like Simple, Whole V. They've invested heavily an atom bank here in the uk which is the digital first bank they've re-architected their systems and you know they really do get it because they're committed from the top down to make it happen and the only other bank i'll probably point to right now that's at the same level is dbs in singapore which won digital bank of the year last year from one of the leading magazines organizations and priesh gupta who's their ceo started out in india during the era of the growth of the indian outsourcing operations into a visionary CEO technologist of a bank and has, again, good management team around him that understand technology as well as financial services. So it's the balance of understanding both. It's not just having technologists, but a balance of both. And that's where you'll see the leading banks of the world.
0: I'm going to ask you if you want to venture a forecast as to when that tipping point might be.
1: In 2020, I think the Internet of Things is really going to start to shake the fundamentals of how we transact and how we organize Uh, systems. And potentially, we're going to let Apple and other online wallets take that aggregation of transactions from the financial players into their operations, if we allow them to do that, which currently we are. The APIs in the middle office, application program interfaces that are coming from people like Stripe and PayPal, but also many others in trading and in operations, will be making an impact early in the next decade. And The front office apps and the middle office APIs are then going to demand restructuring the back office, which we've never had to do. But the back office restructuring, if you start that in 2020, 2021, by the time that you've done it, you're probably going to find that you're too late. You really need to be starting it now because machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, cloud, the things we've been talking around, distributed ledgers, blockchain are all developing right now. And if you let you know, five years go by before you start getting on the case, you've missed a huge window of ensuring your future business survival.
0: It is an exciting revolution that we're living in. And if you want to know what it means and know what it will mean, do what we do here, read The Financer. Chris Skinner is on top of it in a way that few are. And Chris, thank you so much for being on the program today.
1: Thank you, Lou, and good luck with all your future podcasting.
0: Chris Skinner is an independent consultant and author. He chairs the Financial Services Club and Nordic Finance Innovate. Be sure to look out for his book appearing in the spring of 2018, Digital Human. And you can catch up with Chris on LinkedIn. And here are three key takeaways from our podcast. Number one, the age of open banking is here and it requires two groups working in unison to make the most of it. First young technologists who understand the digital revolutions taking place right now and second established bankers who have the knowledge of how financial services institutions work there's a mentoring role for established bankers to play with the young technologists and there's a visionary and information role that the technologists can play to enlighten the bankers number two revolutions need revolutionaries consider bringing in a leadership team where one half of the members come from the world of IT and digital. This can help make possible a cultural change program and a transition in thinking and visioning that lets your bank move to the top of the pecking order. And number three, if your bank or financial services organization is ready to make the leap, made possible by the Internet of Things, start with this hypothetical question. If today we were to build it from nothing, what would it look like, and how far away might it be? In this way, you can approach the problem with a fresh perspective. There's no need to wipe clean what you've already accomplished. This is a matter of joining the revolution and creating something that brings tremendous value to your bottom line. while the internet of things is certainly incredible it's not by any means invincible in a recent bai piece lights camera in action threatened banking security howard altman reveals how hackers can get through security walls through security cameras of all things and even a light bulb but while any device hooked up to the internet of things in theory is vulnerable the good news is that there are ways to stop the problems before they start here are a number of tips that come by way of Phil Dumas, who serves as Director of Research and Curriculum Development for the nonprofit National Cyber Partnership. First of all, never deploy an unknown device. Configure it, test it, and deploy it in a sandbox environment and see who and what it talks to when deployed. You'll also want to deploy the IoT on a separate network, firewalled from the rest of the mission critical devices. Change factory default usernames for devices and avoid obvious passwords such as password1234 and monitor everything. That especially means traffic to and from IoT devices because they should generate the least amount of data. For more useful tips and information on the Internet of Things as it relates to security, be sure to check out Howard Altman's piece on BAI.org. And thanks for tuning into our podcast. Don't forget to check out our ever-growing archive of podcasts at BAI.org. I'm Lou Carlos, the managing editor of BAI. We'll see you next week. So long.